you have a Bible and you want to open it up to John 3.16, that's where we are. And maybe you already have it memorized. And uh, if you don't, um, I would encourage you to do that. It's, it's, it's one verse. It's actually one sentence. And we are focusing in on that as, uh, as we lead up to our commemoration and celebration of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection coming up Easter Sunday. And so leading up to that, we are spending time focusing on this verse. So um, I'd like to begin like we did last time and just have us read it together. Uh, There is a note sheet in your folder, and we'll put it up on the screen also. John 3.16, this is from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Can you say that with me? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So we're spending four messages uh, on this verse, and what we're doing is we're zeroing in on four key words and the truths those four words represent, communicate. The four words are perish, loved, believes, and live, or life. Last time we looked at perish, and perish refers to the desperate situation we are all in apart from Christ because of our sin because of our rebellion against God, uh, preferring God to other things, ignoring His ways, even choosing to go against His ways, um, to, to do things that He says are evil. Because of our rebellion against God, God in His perfect absolute justice is compelled to condemn us to regard us guilty and pass sentence upon us. And, there, uh, and that sentence, that, that justice, is to be separated from him and from all that is good forever. You, you could think about it this way. In effect, we're saying, God, I don't want you in my life, and God basically gives us what we want. No God. There are really hardly any adequate words to describe how bad that is, how desperate our situation is. But it's because the bad news is so bad that the gospel, the good news, is so good. And that's what we're going to begin exploring today in this word loved, as in God so loved the world. And this This word, this word loved, speaks of God taking action. It's a verb. God so loved. God did something. He demonstrated love. He acted in love to intervene on our behalf, to provide a remedy for our desperate situation. And this intervention is astounding, breathtaking, phenomenal. 
uh, I just was, you know, going through my thesaurus trying to find a word that would really capture how awesome God's intervention is. I landed on the word astounding. You can choose another word if you like, but it's just, just like it's hard to describe how bad our desperate situation is without Christ, it's hard to describe how good God's intervention is, the remedy that he provided. It's astounding. Um, and we're going we're gonna to try to grasp just some of how astounding it is this morning by, by uh, looking at some reasons why it's so astounding. But before we do that, I want to take just a couple of minutes uh, to point out something really obvious from the verse, and it's, it's already up on the screen. Uh, Jesus teaches us that God is real. Now, that's obvious, but I think it's really relevant for us in our day when it seems to be becoming more and more popular for people to deny that and to say that God does not exist, that he's not real. This verse, John 3.16, comes from Jesus. Okay, Whether he actually said it directly as a quote and John quoted him verbatim or whether Jesus taught this truth to his apostles and John wrote it down at this point here in the book because it so perfectly elaborates the things that Jesus has just been talking about with a man named Nicodemus. The point is it comes from him. And the point I want you to see, and I just want you to think about for a few minutes, is that Jesus taught us that God is real. He's real. Now, he obviously taught this in many other places as well, but this verse begins very simply for God. God exists. God is real. Jesus taught us this. And as I said, this may be very obvious, but sometimes I think it's important to state the obvious because this world has a way of ignoring the obvious. Yeah, there are many actually good reasons for believing that God exists. This is one of them. Jesus said so. And so, you know, if somebody ever asks you, they, you know, if you're a believer in God and somebody says, well, that's interesting. Why do you believe in God? One answer you can give is, I believe in God because Jesus believed in God. And all that I know about Jesus leads me to trust him. In fact, to trust him more than I trust any philosopher, any scientist, any friend that I've ever known. And then you could actually turn around and say, can you think of anyone better qualified to teach us about the existence of God than Jesus? The only one who ever was put to death and rose from the dead. Jesus begins with God. And I just want to encourage you not to hurry past that for God. You might even just take a moment and say to yourself, Jesus tells me that God is real. That God made this world. That God made me. And I am a person. I am a person with a conscience, with a sense of uh, justice. I'm a person with, with this capacity to think and to feel and to make choices, and have relationships, all because I am created by 
a personal God who made me in his image. You know, that actually explains a lot that is otherwise pretty unexplainable. Because if this universe is, as, as kind of the conventional mainstream view goes, if this universe is simply an impersonal collection of matter and energy, you know, that's all there is, just a bunch of matter and energy, molecules flying around. If that's all there is in the universe, it's really difficult to explain why persons exist. That is, uh, persons, and, and you know, the world is obviously full of personal beings, beings who are self-aware, who use reason. You realize reason is not a material thing? It's not matter or energy. Reason is, is an idea, logic, these things. And we, we are persons who are self-aware and we can use these things. And we, we appreciate things like beauty. Mac talked about all the flowers out there today. Did you see those? And when, when you see that, does something kind of... Is, is that just, you know, neurons doing what they do because, I don't know, it gives you greater survival value to go, man, daffodil, that's beautiful. And we've got this built-in sense Everybody does that some things are some things really are good and some things really are evil. This innate sense of justice. Whatever view of reality you account for has that whatever view of reality of the world that you you end up adopting, you have to account for this somehow. Because if there is no intelligent personal designer then that means that everything that you and I see, everything we think, everything we feel, is merely the result of undirected, unintelligent, impersonal molecules unintentionally interacting with each other. And any idea that we carry around, any notion that anything actually means anything, is an illusion. That's where that, ver- that view compels you to go. The very existence of meaning, of purpose, of worth is all an illusion. And I think it's very possible that many people who say they don't believe in God have not thought that through seriously enough. But, but do so. Just think. If there's no God, then there is... No objective meaning to things like good and evil and truth and beauty and logic, right, wrong. There's just matter and energy. There's just matter and energy that happened to interact in such a way that we came into existence without any meaning, without any purpose whatsoever. And what I just want to point out it's, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what he believed. That's not what he taught. He said there is a God. This God is personal. He made us like himself. He made us for himself. That he might be known. He has made himself known. And that he might be known by us and through us. The meaning of life, according to Jesus, is knowing and showing God. 
And that's why, that's why our rebellion against him has put us in such a desperate situation. It's put us in complete opposition to the very meaning and purpose of our lives. You know, we have rebelled against what the Bible says. We all really know deep, deep down inside that there is a God, that he is creator, that he is personal, and we owe him everything. And yet we've defied him. We've ignored him. We've spurned him. We've rejected him in countless ways. We have preferred other things to him. That's why our rebellion is... It's why our situation is so desperate. And yet, God has not abandoned us. He has not given us over to justice. He has intervened. And so what I want to do now is just think about, let's just think about what it means that God loved the world. John Newton called it amazing grace. Uh, I'm calling it an astounding intervention. Again, you can use whatever words you like, but just for a few minutes, let's try to grasp just the magnitude of what is wrapped up in that word loved. Why is God's love so astounding? What makes his love astounding? Two things come to mind to me. First of all, God's love is astounding. What makes it astounding is because of whom he loved because of whom he loved and notice what it says god so loved the world that's astounding now maybe that doesn't seem astounding to you uh maybe you hear that you're not particularly impressed maybe it seems very natural to you that god would love the world in fact maybe you've grown up hearing that a lot so it's like yeah okay so god loved the world what What's so big about that? Well, it's important that you understand what, what John means when he says world. When we hear world, we might be thinking, well, you know, we're just talking about all people, and God loves all people because he made them, and most people, you know, as far as we can tell, are fairly decent. It seems to us, well, sure, yeah, God loves the world. Well, that's not what world means here, okay? Especially in John's writing, the term world refers to the world of humanity in defiance against God. It's the world of people and politics and economics and, and entertainment that frankly could not care less what God wants, what God thinks, what God says about anything. And the thing is, biblically speaking, you either belong to that group, you know, this world system in rebellion against God, you either belong to that group, because basically that's the group we're born into, or, or by the gracious intervention of God, you belong to this new humanity that God is creating through His Son. So, world here is not talking just about a bunch of lovable people. It's talking about people who consistently resist and reject and dishonor God and whom God would be completely justified to condemn. That's, that's the world God so loved. 
And when you start to think about it, then that's why it becomes significant and we can marvel because God's love is so unlike our love or what comes naturally to us. And let's be honest, think about all those you love. Our love tends to be mostly a because of kind of love, a because of kind of love. We love people because, because they're so cute, they're so sweet, they're so handsome, you know, something about them makes them lovable. Now, it's true, occasionally people will fall in love with someone who turns out to be a real jerk. But that happens mainly because they didn't know their true character. You know, that, that person managed to cover up their true character with this lovable veneer. Actually, I suppose we all try to put on a nice, lovable veneer uh, most of the time. You see, that never happens with God. God's never fooled by veneers. And the fact is, you might be here today, and you might be fooling everybody else, but you're not fooling God. You might think to yourself, and tell yourself, yeah, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. God would never condemn me. You know, Jesus didn't have to die on a cross for my sin, for me to be forgiven. You can tell yourself that, but God knows better. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what does the Lord see when he looks at our hearts? A whole lot of yuck, frankly. You know, sometimes people think of good and evil as kind of like you know, the balance thing. And they think, well, my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, so I should be good. I'm, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. You should set, think of a, like, a glass of water, pure water, and the good stuff is the water, and the bad stuff is some sewage you dump in with the water. And you ask yourself, so is that water pretty good still? You want to drink that? No, the sewage spoils it. It ruins it. That's what sin does in our hearts. There's a lot of yuck in there. All that stuff you wouldn't necessarily want everybody else to know about. <laughs> I mean, if the person who's sitting next to you right now, if they could somehow know every thought you've ever thought, every feeling you've ever felt, if they could just know that about you, know every thought and feeling you've ever had, do you think they'd still want to sit next to you? Well, they would if they love you with God's kind of love. Because God's kind of love, as opposed to the kind of love that comes naturally, God's love is never about how lovable we are. God's love is always about how loving He is. Let me say that again. God's love is never about how lovable 
we are. And this is where we always get off track. Even those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we start getting all about how lovable we are. We can't imagine why God keeps loving us because we know what a big screw-up we are or whatever. And we're missing it. it. God's love's never about how lovable we are. It's always about how loving He is. It's not about the value of anything in our hearts. It's about the value He places on us because of what's in His heart. So different. If it does not just astound us that God loved the world, including you, including me, if it doesn't astound us, we probably just don't realize how ugly how nasty, how abhorrent sin is to God. You know, we've got those sins that we think, yeah, that's really, really bad. And God doesn't look at all sin as exactly the same, but it's all ugly to Him. It's all sewage to Him. And we've all sinned. We've all sinned. And God still loves us. Romans 5, 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. (laughs) Maybe you could kind of think, all right, if I had to, who would I be willing to die for? You might be willing to die for a really great person for a really great cause. That's what he's saying. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, even per, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's astounding that God loved the world. The other thing that makes God's love astounding is it's astounding how he loved. It's astounding how he loved. Whom he loved and how he loved. So it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God's love motivated him to give and the gift that he gave is staggering. Staggering. I want you to focus for a minute on that word only, his only son. Now, many of you probably learned this verse with the expression only begotten son, okay? And maybe you're wondering what happened to that word. Well, what happened to it is it's not really a very accurate translation of the original which is why our modern versions say only or one and only or something like that. There's a Greek word called, it's uh, monogenes. Mono means one. Genes means kind or species or something like that. One of a kind. The point is, it's talking about the son's uniqueness not about his origin. And that's the problem with begotten. It makes us think of origin. You know, dads beget children. 
But that's not the focus. The focus is on his uniqueness, his one-of-a-kindness. And you can see this in another place. In Hebrews 11.17, uses the very same word to refer to Abraham's son, Isaac. Look at Hebrews 11.17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his monogenes, his only son. Okay, but think about it. If you know the story of Abraham, was Isaac Abraham's only begotten son? No. He had another son named Ishmael, who was born 13 years earlier. Isaac was Abraham's unique son, the son of Sarah, the son of promise. He was one of a kind. The fact is, God has many sons by creation and by adoption. Okay, the angels are called sons of God in the book of Job. Christians are called sons of God in the book of Romans. But when, when Jesus is called the son of God, he's in a class all by himself. He's one of a kind. Jesus alone is the son of God by virtue of his eternal nature and his eternal relationship with the Father. Sharing with the Father and with the Spirit all the qualities of deity, Godness. So, whatever it is that makes God God, Jesus has it. Very first verse of this book, the book of John, refers to Je- John refers to Jesus like this In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word was. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So see it at the beginning of the universe, when God brings the universe into existence, the Word, the Son of God, already was. You see it also in John 17.5, where Jesus is praying. This is the night before He's going to go to the cross, and He prays this, And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed, before the world was. I remember talking to a guy one time and we were sitting around, I don't know, being profound. And we were thinking about eternity and he said, you know, think about it. You can kind of think of eternity as never ending. You know, you just go on and on and on, and it never ends. You can almost kind of grasp it, sort of. But try to think about eternity never beginning. You You can't do it. As far back as your mind can go, and even further, the Father and the Son have always existed in perfect relationship. A relationship so perfect that Jesus uses the word glory to describe it. You say, okay, that's cool, but what's the point? Because it's only as we begin to grasp how awesome 
Jesus is and how glorious his relationship with the Father has always been. It's only as you begin to kind of wrap your brain around that that you begin to grasp the wonder of God's love and what it led him to do. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we know, we know what that giving was. It was a giving up to rejection. It was a giving up to humiliation. It was a giving up to absolute infamy, to destruction, to death. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. When the Father gave His only Son, He gave Him to be the one who took all of His justice. Jesus took upon Himself the justice the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the kind of love with which the Father has loved us. That's what makes his love so astounding, so breathtaking. I, I, I just run out of words. He gave to the most undeserving, most unworthy creatures his most worthy, his most precious, his most treasured, one-of-a-kind son. And what that then puts, the question that puts before every single one of us, what will you do with this precious gift God has given? What will you do? You know, on your birthday or Christmas or whatever, somebody comes up and holds out a gift to you, what do you do? You don't stand there and go and walk away. There's an interesting connection Jesus makes in the verses that lead up to John 3.16. Jesus refers to an event. Jesus is having a conversation with this man named Nicodemus. And he, taught, he, he brings up an event that happened way, way back when, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt. And the people were, you know, if you read through the story, it's just like they do okay for a while and then they, they sin and they complain and they gripe. And they were hungry, and so God provided this amazing food called manna. And sure enough, you know, in not very long, they began complaining. This manna's not good enough. And all this other stuff. They're just sinning, the rebellion against God, and as a result of their sin, this plague of venomous snakes comes into the camp, and people are being bitten, and they're dying all over the place. And Moses intervenes, Moses prays, 
for the people. And it says this in Numbers 21.8. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So, look at the picture here. God's love intervenes. These people deserve judgment. They deserve condemnation. They deserve what's happening to them, and yet God intervenes to rescue these rebellious people from perishing by lifting up a serpent on a pole. And you think, man, that is a weird story. But look, what do the people have to do? What do the people have to do to live, to not perish? To look at God's provision. God says, here, I'll make the provision. You just look in faith. It's an act of faith. Look, and you will live. And that's when Jesus says this, John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. God lifted up His Son on a cross. This is what that Old Testament story is pointing to. He lifted up His Son on a cross so that anyone perishing from the deadly venom of sin could simply look to Him in faith and have life. And God did that because God loves the world. God so loved the world, including you. And you might say today, well, I don't know. I've been carrying this venom of sin in my system for a long, long time. You know, God knows that. He knows everything about you. Everything. All the stuff nobody else even knows, he knows. And you might think you're a mess today. I'll just be blunt. You're actually in worse shape in his eyes than you are in your own. But that didn't stop him. You see, it's how unworthy we are and how worthy Jesus is that makes his love so astounding. It's absolutely astounding. So, here's what I plead with you to do. Stop looking at yourself. Don't look to yourself. Look to God's Son. Respond to God's love And look to his son. Look at the gift God gave you because he loves you. Look to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Say, how do I do that? Just tell him. Tell him you want life. Tell him you want to be rescued from perishing. Tell him that Jesus, you you want to know, you know, Jesus said an interesting thing one time, because we get all worried about how much faith we have. Jesus said, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. You know how small a mustard seed is? It's, it's so little tiny. It's not about the amount of faith. It's about the object of your faith. Jesus, put your trust in him and you will not.
perish. Let's bow together and pray. And again, I want to just give you a quiet moment. And if you're here today and you have never yet said yes to Jesus Christ, you have never yet received the gift that God gave, and I would encourage you today to do that. Just admit you're a sinner. Admit you're perishing without Him and you want Him. You want Him in your life. You want the life that He alone can give you. And ask Him for it. And all of us who've maybe already made that choice, Soon we'll be gathering around the communion table and we'll be celebrating the price Jesus paid, the giving, the gift that God gave that we might have life and ask Him to help us really appreciate how marvelous that gift is. Let's pray. Father, there really are No words to describe how astounding, amazing, breathtaking, spectacular your gift, your love is. And um, so I'm just going to pray that you, by your Spirit, would open up our minds and hearts to grasp it a little better, maybe a lot better today. And will you help us live this week in light of the great love with which you've loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.